Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, y'all. Hey, Haiti. Hi, Haiti ho. How y'all doing out there? And Profane faith, COVID-19 virus land. Oh, my goodness. Tell you what, though, your boy finally found some toilet paper. <laughs> Tell you what, I sure enough did. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I had to get my butt up early and uh, went out to Target, and there it was. They were only allowing one, and I paid 40 bucks. But uh, you know what? Your boy got uh, his... Uh, he got his stuff taken care of, you know what I'm saying? So who knew, y'all? Who knew? Three weeks in a row talking about toilet paper um, and the madness uh, being bid on eBay. But, you know, I'm here surviving. Hopefully you are in a good spot. Um, man, I don't know about y'all, but this this last week has been rough, particularly yesterday. I, I had to work real hard with my own just mental health, man. Depression was setting in. Um, just a sense of hopelessness in general. Um, and I could feel it, right? Trying to listen to my body, right? I could feel it in my gut. Uh, I could feel it in my neck. Um, and thankfully, you know, it's like, uh, thankfully this medication, uh, I'm thankful for family. I'm thankful for a dog park. We went out to the dog park. We've been, in fact, my family and I, we've been going out to the dog park, uh, very regularly, um, over the last, uh, you know, few weeks. And, that really helped buoy my spirits just because, man, I needed that. I needed that and just, yeah, it was it was just feeling rough. And for those of you who suffer with just depression and anxiety, you already know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, thank God. Uh, but it's like, I it was like trying to, somebody's asking you to run full steam in a pool with water um, up to your chest. And I was like, I'm trying to, and I, man, it, whew, yes, so. Um, yesterday I was at least able to push through other days. I'm not other days. It's just, you know, uh, you got to take a mental health day and that's just is what it is. And so, uh, it was nice. It was nice to, to get out a little bit, you know, and here in Chicago, it's been, you know, uh, it's been real cloudy. It's been real gloomy. Um, and we're transitioning from spring or from fall or rather from winter to spring. So it's, uh, it's been really, really rough. So, um, you know, keep your mind, keep your boy in mind as you, as, you know, if you do prayers, meditation, um, uh, special thoughts, I'll take all of that. Um, you know, like I said, it's day by day and I'm actually going to see my therapist again, uh, this coming week here. And, uh, thankfully he has a, um, you know, the, all the therapists, well, at least all the therapists I know are doing like the whole virtual thing. So I'm, we'll log on and I uh, have a whole virtual 
uh, you know, session. And I am definitely needing that. Uh, there's just a lot. I've tried to pull away from social media because that doesn't help. Um, you know, and research, of course, supports that. Got to get off social media because uh, there's just so much crap on there and it's very easy to just get consumed and anxious. And so for those of you, again, who deal with this type of stuff, I just encourage you to uh, take yourself and what you're telling yourself uh, seriously. Take your take take your take. I should say, take the things that you need to do to yourself to get better seriously, uh, because that is that's the real deal. Um don't put it off. Don't try to, you know, because there was another voice in my mind trying to say, oh, but be tough. Don't, you know, don't admit it. You know, you got it. You got it. And it's just kind of like, no, just allow this to be what it is. But also take your, you know, self-care seriously. Uh, and so that's what we were able to do yesterday and get out and, um, yeah, you know, go and, uh, you know, have a good, good time at the dog park. And like I said, that was really good. And then, you know, to come back and, you know, do some projects here. And that was that was good because it's important, right, to keep your kind of keep your mind going and whatnot. Because at the end of the day, I'm not really even scared of of getting the virus. Like even if I tested positive, I'm not even thinking about that. Matt, my anxiety comes from what is coming next, right? Because this is different than most things. I would say most of us in our lifetimes have experienced. Like we haven't experienced things this bad, and you know, and to have, of course have a complete uh, idiot in the uh, in the White House trying to run this, you know, just adds to the the anxiousness. And so, um, it's important. It's important to disconnect. Uh, you know, podcasting has helped, uh, and I appreciate y'all. And, uh, it's been great to get, you know, down into the lab and, you know, my four, my Enneagram four just starts going into overdrive. Like I got to do something creative, create something creative, come up with something that's, you know, from you. And so, yeah, take a deep breath. Y'all <sighs> breathe out. Don't forget to breathe. Yes, indeed. So um, this week, I'm not going to take long because this this episode, I don't know, you can already see like, whoa, uh, one of my good friends, Dr. Gabe Villas, uh, actually had a chance to sit down with him last June. Oh, I wanted to take us back in time to a time when we were free and we could roam around and go to weddings. And uh, 2019 was such a great year. And, you know, all we had to worry about was uh, GOP bullshit and... Um, you know, evangelical, conservative evangelicals, right? That was the only thing that was, that was, uh, 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 uh infectious, right? <laughs> oh man. But, uh, at any rate, uh, he and I went back and forth cause I was going to release this earlier. And then he was like, well, no nah, way. Cause he's trying to get his thing going. So we were trying to time it. A lot of times I try to time interviews when people release stuff just to kind of, you know, kind of have a saturation, if you will. Um, and so finally I was like, you know what, let's just, let's just run it. Uh, and this is, I think this is a great week, um, for that. And so, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's a good friend of mine and, uh, one of my best friends that we keep in contact with that I keep in contact with and we keep in contact with each other. And he was able to come through Chicago back when planes were still moving. Uh, and you know, like I said, you, 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 you didn't have to wear a mask everywhere and gloves. Um, and I actually had him had it, had it had a chance to sit down with him here uh in the uh here in the in the lab and so it was great man he's a native of los angeles in 2017 uh he was named the first professor of mentorship in the united states with over a decade of experience as an academic uh, dr Viz is taught at 12 institutions of higher learning Viz is a prolific speaker an author addressing the societal ills of the day 
through the mentoring lens of venues such as Princeton and Yale, I will say that like mentoring is his thing. Like if you really want to hear more about what mentoring and, you know, proteges and, and what those things, I mean, this is, you, you're going to be listening to the right person. Um, V is not only um, advocates for, but also models how to effectively implement intercultural mentoring as a means of community transformation. He co-founded the consulting firm, One Protégé, with his wife, Dr. Karina V, they're both doctors, uh, which has been pioneering research in areas such as protégé-initiated mentoring and the mentoring lineage. And you check that out. As a highly visible public scholar and sought-after consultant, B is heavily relies on social media platforms to cultivate relationships with leaders internationally shape, excuse me, um, relationship with leaders and internationally shape the trajectory of mentoring globally. Um, he uh, recently launched the Los Angeles School of Mentorship, which you'll be talking a little bit about, which is a progressive artistic community dedicated to developing more effective mentors and protégés. And so, um, yes, I am excited to have him on the show. He is a longtime fan of Profane Faith. And like I said, one of my best friends, and it was an honor and a pleasure to sit down with him last June. So without any further ado, I turn it over to our conversation and blessings to y'all. Again, make sure you do you take care of yourself out there. Listen to your body and what's going on. All right. And uh, I'll be praying. You be praying. We're going we, we gonna, to we gonna get through this somehow. Uh, uh, we're going to get it through somehow. I don't know, but we're going to get through it. It's going to be different on the other end, but... That's for another conversation. All right, here we go, y'all. Take care. Good stuff, man. Yeah. Brother, Dr. Gay V is finally in the Profane Faith Lab, brother. How you doing? I'm doing well. I have arrived. I was uh, initially, Dan, when you were launching this podcast, you were, uh, I was out in the Midwest Yes, and I have finally returned to home, and I think it's apt that now I come on profane faith and have a chat with you because the Midwest was definitely an interesting experience to say the <laughs> least. <laughs> yes, well, and for those listening, brother Gabe is a longtime listener fan. You're one of the first to really encourage me to do this, and actually, I took my cues from you. I was just telling you, I was like, the first time I went over to your house. I was like, man, this dude got all kind of goddamn video equipment, man. I was like, this stuff is like, good night. So I was like, I had to do something on audio. I was like, yeah. you know, that's my gig, man. But thanks for making the time and coming out, man. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate it. And I have made a couple trips out here before, Dan. So I was able to picture the studio that I would be in. So I was able to put a little image on this little cocoon cave <laughs> that you've been putting in this work, this basement of, uh, of you know, of revolution, I'll call it. Yes, yes, yes. No, absolutely. I know with the medium of podcasts, you can't see it, and but hopefully we're videoing right now. Yeah. Um, y'all, hopefully somebody will see something this, uh, of this. But yeah. yes, it is. It's been a. This started out as a, as a little workspace, but I was like, no, I'm going to turn this into the lab. I, you know, I wrote a, my the Homeland Insecurity down here, um, and I was like, man, this this would be a good little studio. So yes, yes. Um, well, for the audience, because I know you've commented a lot on, on this. I know you've heard the show. You know the format. What happened, man, from birth to now? what's What's been going on in Dr. V? Is, how did you end up doctor? Well, Dan, <laughs> I guess my story starts out in Mexico. Yes. Right? That's where my grandparents Come were on. from. 
uh, Villas is not that recognizable of a Mexican last name, but Aguilar, Ramirez, and Martinez definitely are the folks. So okay. um, I'm a product of those giants, those um, those courageous folks that had risk taking in their blood, seeking out different opportunities for us and just modeling uh, how to live life and be people of faith. Uh, I would say that coming up on the east side of L.A., one of the Mexican-American epicenters of the United States, that I am a product of storefront Latino Pentecostalism and Christian television. Mm. And, and, and for that, I say, you're welcome and I'm sorry at the same time. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the blessings and the curses of both those movements and I guess you could say that part of my own journey has been tied into this concept of identity crisis mm. of, uh, you know, what does it mean to be the most educated person in your family? What does it mean to be a prophetic ethnic minority leader in predominantly white institutions? And uh, through my journey, I guess you can say professionally speaking, you could divide it up into eight year segments. Mm. That was not by choice. Okay. I would say uh, at 15, as a uh, a preacher at my own high school. I started, uh, you know, sharing the gospel at my high school, predominant Mexican-American high school with the aftermath of the crack cocaine epidemic and all the drugs and gangs and all that uh, interesting stuff that went on there. And I actually ended up going to Zusa Pacific University and mm-hmm. Fuller Seminary. And on that journey, I thought, I'm going to be the next Mexican-American mega church pastor. <laughs> And unfortunately, I started getting liberated along the way. You know, I wasn't trying to, figuratively speaking, trying on the shoes of my mentors. I realized those shoes didn't quite fit. And it was at uh, Fuller Seminary that I actually came across a parachurch organization, a nonprofit that did mentoring. And there, my whole trajectory of life changed. And at that point, I started mentoring about 20 guys, half African-American, half Latino, uh, met with them for about five years. That came out to about 250 meetings each or 5,000 meetings over five years. Mm-hmm. That is unreal that mm. a Mexican is working with other folks, people of color at that young of an age. A lot of times when we think about mentoring, we're thinking about mentoring of, you know, this is someone that's, uh, you know, in their 40s, 50s, maybe retiring. They got it all figured out. They got the connections. But I actually start out mentoring at a younger age, right? And mm-hmm. the, one of the significance of that is, Predominantly in America, the majority of mentors are white females. So here I was embarking on a different path. And I remember uh, one of these key moments. I was sitting in a car in a Carl's Jr. Shout out to Carl's Jr. Uh, they ain't paying me, but I appreciate uh, Carl's Jr. And by the way, Hardee's is not the same as Carl's Jr. Come on. When I'm out in the Midwest, I, I know. threw that hamburger out and spit it out. Oh, man, I know, man, I, pre- I know. I appreciate the logo, but goodness gracious. But anyways, uh, you know, I was meeting a Carl's Jr., sitting across from one of my protégés, and we'd only been meeting for about four weeks. Hmm. And I remember I told him, I was like, Critique me as hard as you want. And for the parents out there, when you ask somebody a question like that, mm-hmm. it's almost like saying to your parents, to your kids, I mean, tell me if I'm a good parent. Like, just be careful what you ask, right? Because okay. you may not be prepared for some of those answers. But for me, I just felt like telling them, and I told them straight up, no one did this for me. I didn't really have sit-down conversations with any adults in my life to talk to me about what does it mean when you're 15 trying to youth pastor your high school? And that's a whole other side note on the topic of youth empowerment of how are we setting up some kids to fail if we 
uh, encourage them so much, but don't provide the resources and support that they need as they're moving forward, trying to chase their dreams down. And it was in that moment of me just looking at my protégés, felt like saying, how is it I've been in the church my whole life and this is the closest thing I'd ever seen to discipleship? Mm. And and it was jarring, you know. Um, how is it that in a sense we had the message of Jesus, and I'm using message in quotes now, but neglected the method of Jesus, you know. Uh, it, it's almost like somebody saying, I love me some Martin Luther King Jr., but in terms of the methodology, I'm going to use some ISIS this life on life, <laughs> anti-celebrity, just spending time with folks yeah, in yeah. the bigger TV ministries I was a part of, or even in some of the storefront uh, opportunities I was in, they really were more set up to clone folks than to actually mentor folks hmm. and support them. So for me, at that moment, I was like, man, I feel like dedicating my life to mentoring. And there is no degree program or major for mentoring the country back then or now. So I thought, well, what's the closest thing? And USC's School of Education uh, had emphasis in urban education. So I studied educational psychology, got my doctorate there. And again, I mentioned these eight-year stints. That first eight-year stint was trying to be a megachurch pastor. This next eight-year stints happened to be that I was going to be in the nonprofit world and doing more parachurch and mentoring emphasis. And so uh, one of my next uh, positions I had was I was um, one of the number two guys uh, the West Coast Director and Director of Academic Programs for Urban Youth Workers Institute. Okay. And um, unfortunately, again, in terms of the trying on shoes at the end of that eight years uh, down this path, I really realized, you know, this is not where I need to be right now. And I started to make the transition into academia at that point, realizing that I created assessments for mentoring programs at every organization I'd been with. I had done mentor trainings, trainings for parents to understand mentoring more, spoken across the country and felt like I have a contribution as an academic and now as a scholar to actually write more about mentoring, to help folks realize the power of this life-on-life -life interaction yeah. that I had uniquely experienced. So that then culminated with a move out of my beloved hometown of Los Angeles oh. on to snowy Cleveland, Ohio, oh, of all oh, places. Oh. And it was in um, at Ashland University that I was actually named the first professor of mentorship in the United States. Damn. So that is a little bit of my journey, Dan, Jeez. in terms of what I have been up to for all these years. My goodness. Um. Wow. So I think, well, one of the reasons I wanted to ask, you know, your, your origin story... <laughs> so to speak, to quote the Marvel Universe, um, was because you, you have such a unique story, right? Because there's some Benny Hinn in this background. Absolutely. Do you, do you, do you mind sharing some of this? And you, then, then um, who was the brother man? Because I used to see him on TV all the time. The white dude? Oh, that was Gene Scott. Yes, Gene Scott. Well, well, if you, <laughs> if you know me, Dan, you know there's a little bit of... Uh, <laughs> Hashtag VS has receipts mm, or mm. hashtag name names. Oh my. Oh yes. Yes. It's profane faith, baby. It's profane on. faith. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and I guess I could say that at some point, uh, no, I would not feel comfortable speaking about that, quite frankly, Dan, because <laughs> yes. um, at a young age, even as a young minister, I realized that mm -hmm. even though, again, I was ordained by Benny Hinn when I was uh, like 22 years old in front of a couple thousand people in L.A., mm -hmm. or that my primary mentor growing up, the pastor of the church I grew up in, was Dr. Gene Scott of Los Angeles. 
that I felt as though I have enough issues with my own sin, yeah. with my own mistakes, with my own fragility, that I don't need the mistakes of my mentor also being attached to me, mm. right? So in a sense, although I would recognize all along that I was never fully a disciple of these folks because I still had issues with some of the things they did, I basically view Christianity from a perspective coming up of being an armor bearer. That's mm. a common um, language that's used in spiritually abusive places, to be blunt. And when I'm talking about armor bearer, I'm talking about basically like the mafia. Like you stay loyal, you pay your dues, you stay quiet, you you earn your your spot, and then when you get the opportunity, then they give you uh, the affirmations, right? right? But all along, I realized that I had a little bit of whistleblower inside of me. I had a little bit of like, <laughs> I don't know about that part. I like this part. Yeah. So I guess you could say I have a a realistic view of a nuanced mentor that okay. someone that could both help you the most could also hurt you the most. So to go specific now, um, although I would count these folks as like mentors, role models up until I was about 23 years old, uh, past that, I didn't really ever bring their names up in public mm-hmm. because I wanted to kind of prove myself to, um, in a sense, if a statute of limitations did exist mm-hmm. that I could say, Hey, look at me on the back end. Um, I've kind of proven myself since, uh, you know, uh, 2003 minus 2019, this 16 years, Gabe ain't like them. Mm-hmm. So therefore, now I can kind of speak to it. And I know that we do exist in a call-out culture, and I have no issue with calling folks out. But I think that in some situations, we need to really think about, um, do we have the moral authority to speak on certain things? So for example... I ain't just trying to call out my mentors when in reality, I have not, in a sense, tried to live my life to be the opposite of them in certain ways, right? So at at the same point, I don't want other people being hurt by them. At the same time, I also have to acknowledge, for some reason, those folks influenced me and you can't tell the Gabe Villa story without acknowledging those names. Yeah. So I think that that's some of the issue even now with... uh, like a Bill Cosby, for example, right? Okay. Do All we right. just not watch his stuff no more, even though he helped to shape, uh, you know, the perspective of what it means to be an educated African American, or maybe even to go to a HBCU and stuff like that? I'm just saying, from my perspective, the way that I've um, interacted in life, I've tried to figure out the nuance myself of even trying to go, what is it that drew me to those folks mm-hmm. during that time? kind of like uh, someone that's abused, why you stay in those relationships. So for me, I realized that although I do not uh, support what they're doing now, I do have to realize that somehow they had an impact on me, yeah. fortunately. Yeah. And yeah. What, what I will point out, though, at the same time is this. There's a lot of people that I saw get hurt along the way mm-hmm. that were not as strong as me. So that does need to be acknowledged. Because there's plenty of ministries out there where uh, folks are living their lives and want to play homage to spiritual mothers and fathers who are less than doing great jobs or hurt people in the past. And I'm always trying to think through, man, where's the level of humility in this mm-hmm. on, on any side where, again, I, I don't want people to continue to get hurt, but I also want to be someone that tries to uh, give folks grace because to be blunt... I knew stuff was going on in those ministries that I should have left sooner and I didn't. 
Okay. And I still feel guilty about some of that. But at the same time, if I just uh, tried to get self-righteous and tell people like, why are you still watching Ken Copeland or Creflo Dollar? Watch yourself now, Gabe, because uh, if this was the mid-90s, yo, uh, I don't know what my response would have been at that time. Necessarily. You know, I, loved, I would love to say at some point when Gabe Vias is exposed to the truth, yeah. that I try to make the right decision. Okay. But then I also know the realities of a lot of us know the right things about the way we're supposed to eat, the way we're supposed to live, the way we're supposed to treat others. But for some reason, it just does not happen overnight. So I guess you could say for me, that's kind of like my mentor's heart is always wanting to see redemption and to be honest with folks, but then also having a realist perspective on how long it takes actually for some folks to change. Right. Man, well, you've, man, you've, yes, you've said a lot in, in regards to, you know, change, leadership. I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think we're, we're very complex. I mean, I just saw right now on the news uh, or on Twitter that, you know, you got the R. Kelly thing, right? That's big here in Chicago right now. I mean, it's been historical. Um, you know, it's been an ongoing thing. Uh, and, and for those of you listening, I did a few episodes on Brother R. Kelly. Um, but, you know, his, his manager was just uh, indicted um, on, you know, like felony counts and all this stuff like that. You know, in the ongoing conversation, particularly in black communities, is like, do we now turn off, you know, R. Kelly yeah. and just not play his music anymore? Yeah. Um, this came up with Michael Jackson. I say all that to say you I like the way you're inter- engaging with, the, you know, the complexity of it all. It's like, OK, these folks did interject into you stuff. It's like, yeah. yes, they were. They had their stuff, but they did still give you something with yeah. that. That's uh, that yeah, it makes it much more real. I think it makes it much more complex. Yeah. Um, so what's what's going on now, man? What what where where do you find yourself now in in the Trumpster era? Um, in the the uh, the era that that um, and especially being a Latinx male in a in a very conservative, rigid environment. How do you how do you navigate some of those things, man? Well, Dan, as you know, <laughs> I think that um, this whole concept of prophetic ethnic mi- minority leader is extremely intriguing. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think about Malcolm X when he would talk about the house slave in the field slave. And, uh, you know, the different uh, allegiances and alliances that those folks have, what was in their interest of what they were trying to preserve. Um, How did you even get into the house? How did you get access (laughs) to to the family members uh, and to be able to poison their food or to kill them at night or whatever? And, 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 you know, there's certain things that you need to do to get to uh, certain places in life. Um, I know when Jay Cameron Carter from Duke ended up coming to Fuller to lecture, I believe it was for like an MLK uh, week type experiences, um, he brought up the the frame of the fugitive slave. Mm. The fugitive slave. The fugitive slave is like the envy and is hated almost by both of those two folks. The folks in the house and in the field going, oh my goodness, you have so much courage to risk your life. But then like a Harriet Tubman, not being satisfied with being freed, but constantly wanting to free other folks. Yeah. I think for me, there's some aspect of, um, no matter what situation or organization you're in, you're, you're either going to be someone that's like, just like playing the game totally, being super explicit, trying to tear that thing down and reshuffle the deck, or those other folks that are subversives. 
Okay. And I would say that that's where I've operated a lot is in this subversive type um, venue. And I would say that um, I come up for air every now and then and uh, make some noise. And one of them would be the Fuller Seminary talk that I gave. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 The, the missiology lectures of 2017 on race. That's right. And uh, just to give you a little background of all this, um, I remember in the Trump election that he was uh, talking about the the Mexicans are sending their rapists yeah. and their yeah. murderers yeah. up here, and I would say that yeah. that was actually a definite churning point in my life in terms of my own activism of things getting amped up more visibly. In fact. Uh, when I heard that, um, I, be, I just took such offense to that um, line because, again, if we went back to the true rapist and murderers, oh, man. those European conquistadors yes. were, yes. Uh, you know, setting the bar high for everybody, you know. And as I thought about even the discussions on both sides of the um, of the aisle during that last presidential election, mm-hmm. It appeared as though even that topic of immigration was not a history-conscious discussion. I didn't hear anything going on policy beyond Reagan's uh, Amnesty Act in the 80s. In fact, I was wondering about if anyone was ever going to bring up the Mexican-American War, of all things. Oh. And, and that Mexican-American War, to this day, is extremely intriguing to me. If you want to say that a uh, dispute over some land in Texas and... Dan, no offense to the great state of Texas, Dang, but that, that land that they were disputing down <laughs> oh, there, yeah. I, I don't know if anybody really wants that land, to be honest <laughs> with you, but over a small portion of land over a disputed border, what turned into a border skirmish because of President Polk amassing troops along that border and actually infringing, infringing on Mexican land, uh, Mexico ended up shooting somebody, killing them. And what was the United States response? Let's go a couple hundred miles into Mexico City, take over the entire country, take down the Mexican flag, put up the American flag. And then there was uh, blood in the streets, as you would imagine, if for something like that happening. I mean, an equivalent would be if we got into a border skirmish with Canada and Canada decided, hey, we're not just going to take some of Niagara Falls. We're going to go all the way down and take down the flag in Washington, D.C. and put up the Canadian flag, unheard of type thing to even take place. And for the record, when that happened in Mexico, mm-hmm. the child soldiers were murdered, were executed. Children were um, going to the front lines to try to to, to stop this um, injustice from happening. And what ensued was essentially Mexico having a gun to America's head and saying, if you do not sign this treaty, then guess what? You are not, we're, we're going to keep the whole country. Give us those northern states and we'll give you $18 million. If not, we're keeping the entire country. And Mexico ended up signing that treaty, Guadalupe Hidalgo. And one of the things that Mexico held out for was we want to keep the uh, the landowners that are in Mexico, we want them to be United States citizens. We want these hacienda owners to keep their land. And unfortunately, through English-speaking courts that came in systematically, that land was taken. And it'd be interesting when you look at history now, and there was language again during that election of, is Mexico a good neighbor to the United States? Yeah. Well, when was the next time a president 
went to Mexico City. Yeah. It was 100 years later, after mm. the Mexican-American War. And it was after World War II. And it was Harry Truman. And Harry Truman laid a wreath at the, at the tomb for the child soldiers. Why would Harry Truman be the first president to go to Mexico? Well, if Mexico was really a bad neighbor, they could have got with Japan. And we'd probably be speaking Japanese in California. Or they could have got with Germany and said, hey, let's open up another front on these guys. And we might be speaking German in California. So for me, as I've embarked on, you know, um, speaking, teaching, on mentoring, I've systematically began to incorporate more of what I'm calling ethnic studies into my talks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether it's a chapel or a training, I'm going to bring in these facts and talk about my um, my grandparents and their story. Because in a sense, it's very easy for someone like me that got their doctorate from USC at 27 to get poster boyed. Oh, this is one of the good ones. We like them. Yeah. But then not realizing, yeah. hey, there's a certain culture and family that I came from. And in fact, I think it's completely disingenuous to have these conversations about being a law and order president or conservatives or Republicans talking about that, you know, if if these uh, Latino immigrants, Latinx immigrants aren't willing to get in line, it does not matter if they are born here, their parents need to go back. Well, if we're going to go back, let's go all the way back to what your great-grandparents did and give that land back. I mean, if we talk about no statutes of limitations, <laughs> right. let's right. do some stuff. And obviously... Those conversations are not coming up. And for me, uh, as a mentor and someone that cares about discipleship, I find it totally disheartening that I even have to use a phrase like economic discipleship. Economic discipleship, a concept of like, yo, do we care more about doing right or care about money? Because it seems like at some level, it's a money game. It's a power game. Mm. It's a, a land game. It's a wealth game. And... For a lot of the folks that uh, I was educated around, going to Azusa Pacific and Fuller Seminary, yeah. schools located in Los Angeles, yeah, not having really any ethnic minority professors, being pretty much the only ethnic minority in these classes, you have to really think about it. How these schools around 100 years be talking about diversity, yeah. yet really refusing to decolonize, which... I would say, Dan, and I, again, this is one of the reasons why I appreciate Profane Faith, is I feel like the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and the sexual revolution skipped evangelicalism and Christian colleges. It totally skipped those places. <laughs> and in a sense, yeah. when we're even engaging on some of these talks, yeah. um, you know, we're getting blowback and pushback. And no offense, I'm like, y'all 50, 60 years behind here. Yeah. What's with the pushback? And right. again, that would then speak into, um, you know, where I'm at in terms of academic freedom. Man, I, I value academic freedom so much. But when you're a adjunct professor, good Lord, you yeah. ain't yeah. You, you, you totally disposable. Yes. And, and that's where I lived for a while. And in fact, even when I uh, obtained my full time position, that was still considered contingent faculty because uh, a lot of these uh, evangelical institutions are doing away with 
um, any type of uh, tenure. They're yep. making to do one and three year uh, contracts. Yep. In fact, they're even getting to places that if you even breathe the word union on these campuses, you're X'd out. So in yeah. places that should be leading in protecting faculty, you're providing faculty with venues to speak their mind or even engage on some of the topics of our day that young people are wrestling with. It's it's tragic, man. It's tragic. So for me, I guess there's always a mindset on me as an academic trying to introduce new concepts, but there is literally a heartbreaking too on the other side, which is why if anybody does check out that uh, lecture I gave at Fuller, I was not being ironic when I said I love Fuller. I was not being ironic. I was not being an instigator. I was, I'm literally calling out that Fuller has so much potential that it breaks my heart that it's yeah. not doing more that it could be. And I'm speaking as an alumni. I'm speaking to someone that uh, worked in the Fuller Youth Institute for years there. Uh, my wife has her doctorate from there. I live three blocks from there. I recommended several people to go to that institution. And uh, I would say that uh, Fuller did shape me in my own journey. But um, it is tragic, though, that um, they do not have the young emerging ethnic minority scholars that should be on that campus. They yeah. should be helping to influence yeah. what I would consider, along with Chicago, one of the academic capitals of evangelicalism in the United States. Yes. One is Los Angeles, one is Chicago. And to be in a place that's that diverse and not to embrace uh, second generation um, Latinos on the campus like they should or to not uh, embrace young African-American professors and other other professors from marginalized populations is truly heartbreaking. You've said a mouthful there, man. That, um, and speaking of Fuller, I mean, I think that, I mean, well, let me just ask you this. I mean, you said it in terms of evangelicalism being 60, 50 years um, behind a lot of stuff, right? Uh, I think the Trump era has has exacerbated that gap, um, right? Um, I think that you know when we think about racialized institutions, and I, and I agree with you. I think Fuller positioned where it's at in Pasadena, California, and living in a a predominantly Latinx community, and 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 not having more of that influence. I've I, you know, it's almost. It's almost pathetic. I mean, I hate to use that type of language, but it's almost pathetic that they don't have more engagement with multi-ethnic. Is there any hope for evangelical institutions? Let me just ask you that. (laughs) There's always hope, Dan, but to be blunt, some things need to die to be reborn. There you go. Come on. And and again, I know that, um, well, I'll give it to you like this. Yes. If you listen to that talk I gave at Fuller, in the true context of what it was given in, nobody else got loud or let out their um, their full selves. Yes. Right? And in, in, in so many places, I feel as though I'm regulated in terms of how honest I can be. And I can remember one uh, faculty meeting I was in at my previous institution. And for the record, I'm no longer at Ashland um, Seminary any longer. Um. At my previous institution, one of my coworkers said, Gabe, uh, it was in a staff meeting, he said, Gabe, I need you to sit next to me and elbow me if I say something so that I'll be quiet. And I said, brother, you need to elbow me to say something because everything (laughs) in my soul says, shut up, 
say the white thing, the right thing, you know. Uh, yeah, say, the white right thing. Yeah. <laughs> they, they say the right thing and you can stay here. But the second you really let out who you are, um, you'll be banished. And <clears throat> after I spoke at Fuller, I had a young African-American guy come up to me and he said this line. He said, Gabe, the white supremacy at Fuller Seminary is so deep. I've not been following Jesus for the past year. But after your talk, I want to start following Christ again. And when I heard that, I thought to myself, why is somebody surprised to hear the truth in a seminary? Lament. Lament. Now, I believe in the specifics, which is why I believe in naming institutions and organizations and individuals. But at the same time, I've had people say, Gabe, that talk about Fuller was actually about intervarsity, uh, young life, youth for Christ, fill in the blank, the organization, yeah. domination. So yeah. I think that, um, that, Dan, when you're asking, is there a hope for evangelical institutions? I think that similar to where it was a break um, decades ago between fundamentalism and evangelicalism, that there has to be a break now between um, evangelicalism and whatever this new thing is being born, led primarily by marginalized folks like ethnic minorities and females. And if a place like Fuller was willing to um, lose certain donors um, and embrace these folks, I believe that they could come back again. Now, I ain't placing my bets on anything anytime soon, but I would say I'm a somber optimist. Okay. That's my vibe. Right. Is somber. Somber. I, okay. I, I, I live in a calm. <laughs> I live in a. As for me and my house, or you know, I'm gonna do what I gotta do. But if other folks don't get with the program, then unfortunately, um, they're either gonna die fast or slow. And unfortunately, it looks like um, the way the way things are going, that this next generation is not satisfied with uh, the way. The people that were supposed to mentor them were treated. Okay. Okay. I'm yeah. talking specific about when I speak at a place like Fuller in 2017 and I don't get invited back. Yeah. That says something to the people of color that hear me speak. And what they hear and what they see are two different things. They hear, oh, we embrace, embrace prophetic uh, voices or you know, we were founded by a prophetic leader like Jesus. But then all of a sudden, someone come in and start talking some prophetic stuff that starts upsetting <laughs> folks. They don't get invited back. And you and I both know that our tokenized siblings that uh, are showing up on boards and podcasts and being invited back multiple times because they're uh, digestible. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're yeah. status quo. Straight up. Straight and they're up. allowing, in a sense... Uh, they're allowing a sense of juxtaposition to take place that says, Gabe, Dan, and, you know, again, we could go down the names of other folks, uh, comrades in this struggle, and yeah. say, um, see, th those, th why can't they be more like them, these other folks? And in a sense, they're even attracting clientels at Fuller that um, there's buyer's remorse, and yeah. I don't think that's acknowledged fully enough. I mean, granted, in the uh, Toxic Fuller protest, there was some acknowledgement of that. But if Fuller really wanted to get serious, they needed to institute whistleblower protections for folks that don't feel like they're going to be threatened by their professors or supervisors if mm -hmm. they speak out. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, they need to support 
I mean, they they financed um, and, and um, gave access to, um, you know, I think it was George Marsden to write Reforming Fundamentalism, the, the story of Fuller Seminary. There's another institutional history. There's another institutional memory. There's another narrative hmm. of people of color that's been there that needs to be put out in print. And if not, then what happens is folks need to come and track down a podcast with a Dominique Coleman or get a podcast by a, um, Esperanza that's on profane faith to be able to hear this knowledge of reality of like, this is how students are being treated at these institutions. In fact, uh, there's many folks that are even still there now that off the record are saying, oh, Gabe, I agree with 100% what you say, but I can't come out because I have a fear of being fired. And I go, right. what, is th- what is that? What is that in any Christian institution where people who Jesus himself said, I am the truth, people mm-hmm. can't be honest? Like, like, what is that? I mean, I, I've, I've asked this question in print. I've asked this question in public. I say, um, I know what a Christian is, but what is a Christian institution? A Christian, and again, this is their language now, someone that uh, opens their their life up, God, do whatever you want with uh, my finances, my future, my family, God, you're in control. A Christian institution is like about perpetuating itself, about, hey, we, we got to protect ours. And in a sense, these institutions that grew and were born in faith now relying more on a statement of faith. Yeah. Faith without works is dead. If there is not an active embracing of prophetic voices, that's like the straight tangible measure of like, actually, I don't quite don't care about all these specifics that are listed on statement of faith. I'm asking, how are you living it? How are you actually taking risks? Mm. And mm. In, in one talk I gave, I said, um, some folks with privilege and prestige at these institutions if they gave away 90% of what they had, they wouldn't even still be at our level, Dan, of where we're at with our stability and security. Yet we are the ones that are helping to lead the charge and be prophetic and speaking out and calling others to, um, to the right way, right? Which is basically be in true, caring, loving relationships. Treat other people as you like to be treated. Ain't no one want to feel like that we're just numbers, or we're, that, or we're just people that are completely disposable. Mm-hmm. Yet when the pattern emerges, I'm thinking back to what my mentor, Elizabeth Conde Fraser said, Gabe, you need to ask yourself, what's the history of any of these institutions, how they treated Latinos? And the truth of the matter is, Dan, if someone grew up in a conservative church like I did, and your pastor is talking high about Fuller, you don't know the truth about Fuller. You don't got access to hearing about how these institutions have historically treated folks, whether it's your story or my story, or we could go down a list of several stories. So I think that as, as I've tried to you know process out this idea of being a Latino in this generation, I've really tried to open up my heart and you know say some things to folks because I don't want anyone to experience some of the things I've done, I've had to experience and tough out because I didn't have access to folks that let's just say, would be completely honest with me. Yeah. Man. Um, goodness gracious. That, that's, 
Well, real quick. So, where is that talk? Is it is it, is it still up online somewhere? Oh yeah, yeah. The Fuller got it on its video. Okay. So you go ahead and get it while you can. Okay. All right. I'll um uh, for those listening, because I'm sure there's some folks listening who probably want to hear that. I'll put that um I have to look for that link and then I'll put it in the show notes um for folks to get at. Um, I mean, speaking of prophetic, you you said a lot. I think what I'm what I'm grasping at, and, and particularly, you know, when we think about it, you said the, the statement of faith, people are, are, are more on their statement of faith, right? Yep. Than they are about living it. Oh, man, that's, that is powerful. Because, right, that, that, that comes up a lot. Well, that's just, this is our statement of faith. They're out of line with our statement of faith, right? And it's really how a lot of Christian institutions get, even when they do have tenure, yeah. That they can get by that and say, well, you're not living. I mean, that's what happened to Doc Hawkins, right, yeah. out, at, out at Wheaton. You know, she, she, you know, tenured, you know, no, nobody in their PR department ever thought to say, y'all need to stop this. Like, th- this is this is crazy. This is not going to look good for the school. Um, so they're just like, you know, she's just out. Of, she's out of line with our with our faith statement. Yeah. I think that's man, that's deep. That's a whole book right there, man. Um so, all right. So let me ask this. So, so you, you, uh, I don't know how much you want to share of this, but you, so you had to leave though. You had to leave Cleveland. Now you're back in LA, man. Yeah. What's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, this is some crazy stuff, man. I mean, this is, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how again. I don't know how much you want to share. You know, just you, 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 you dictate how much you want to share. But I, I think it's important just to talk about just some of the shiftiness that that happens within some of these institutions, um, and some of the back door. You know, we got people who are labeled experts, race experts. You know, but they're really just white moderates and really bad white moderates. And um, but these are the ones running our institutions. I'm 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 gonna take it back to um, Malcolm X and J. Cameron Carter for oh, a second. Oh Lord! Okay, come and, on. Uh, talk about personas. So I think personas are significant. Personas, in a sense, um, if you went to WWE, formerly WWF, <laughs> that's if you right. went to that, if you went that's to that right. pro wrestling, WWF. That's what I grew up on. You you'll notice that certain characters like reinvented themselves, right? So all of a sudden they're you know they're they're one character, they're a good guy, and then all of a sudden they're they're a bad guy, and they're yes. doing all the bad guy things. Yes, and yes. There's, there's a famous guy, uh, Mick Foley. He had a couple characters. Mick Foley was one. Then he had Cactus Jack, and he had Mankind, <laughs> and he had Dude yeah. Love, and yeah. I'll just talk about the last two. A Mankind was. Uh, Kind of like this devious, evil guy, and uh, had a mask on, and then Dude Love was just like the coolest guy, the ladies' man. And when he wore these costumes, he just embodied these personas. I think that personas are significant in terms of how we wrestle with identity in the midst of changing situations and seasons of life. Because oftentimes, when you're going through things and experiencing things, um, whether it's like I said, what does it mean to youth pastor your high school at 15? Or what does it mean to be the most educated um, person in your family? Or what does it mean to be an educated Mexican-American male? Or um, what does it mean to be uh, someone that's a natural whistleblower? Yeah, yeah. You trying to walk these things out, and it's it's difficult. So I'm just going to say that... Um, 
I just want to take us on a lot of route before I get to my full answer. Martin Luther King, before he was killed, said, if you want to talk about me after I die, say I was a drum major. <laughs> said I was a drum major for righteousness and yeah. peace and justice, stuff like that. And basically saying he's trying to lead the parade. He's trying to lead a movement of folks that care about this topic. Yeah. And in fact, at his funeral, two weeks later, they would play excerpts of this funeral, of, of this uh, sermon that he gave uh, on a nationally televised platform. And then I think about uh, Jesus. Jesus used personas. He said, I am the good shepherd. I am the truth. I am the light. I am the true vine. He would speak about himself in analogies that would allow people to understand him, how to relate to him and how he could relate to others. And in fact, uh, God, Old Testament, talking to Moses, Moses says, uh, who am I going to say sent me? He said, say I am. So the words I am are extremely significant when anybody uh, begins to talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a sense, I see God and Jesus saying, choose an analogy. I am the best example of that in any category. I am the, the, the epitome of altruism, of love, of care, of compassion, of justice, of righteousness. So for me, as I think about how I've identified myself in terms of my personas, one of the personas that I've used is that I'm a soldier. Okay. Not saying that I'm literally a soldier with any weapons. I'm saying I feel like I'm a soldier that I have to day to day pump myself up to go into really difficult situations, right? And some folks can avoid difficult situations. I choose not to. I choose to go into the difficult situation. I choose to um, to, to to embrace difficulty. Um, I, I for a while I had a motto we'll called "Whatever it takes." that that's built into who I am to even get by and to do things. And through my own journey of doing um, work as a high school student in the community or juggling multiple jobs or juggling, uh, you know, going to school full time and doing all these other things, I've constantly thought about myself as this uh, soldier type role. And when I saw the opportunity to come up to Cleveland, Ohio, it was a dream job. Okay. It was a job. It was only the type of job that I would even consider leaving my beloved hometown of Los Angeles for. Yes, sir. And when I ended up going there, I thought at a level, Dan, that I would be like some of my other friends that moved to the Midwest (laughs) for opportunities when uh, the right opportunities didn't open up in uh, Southern California. Oh, man. And I took that leap and that jump. And to be honest with you, Within my heart, I put I would be there three to five years, which technically I was there three years. But that was one of the roughest three years of my life. Yeah. And um, as I spoke with, uh, again, one of my mentors, Elizabeth Conde Frazier, she said, Gabe, what did you learn about yourself? And I said, I thought I was going to go on some R&R, some rest and relaxation. I thought I was going to leave L.A. where... You know, cost of living is high and it's competitive. Certain jobs have 200 applicants coming in. Um, I thought I was going to basically not have to feel like I was drowning, right? Because that's, in a sense, what some of these big cities feel like when you're working on a nonprofit or an adjunct rate. I mean, at Fuller, for a class I was getting, even having taught there for, what, um, eight or nine years, was $1,300 a class. That compared to what the state schools are paying, 
or even um, other private schools, it's incredible rate to get paid there. But again, uh, if you love the students and you love um, impacting the mission of that place and you want to influence it, but you realize this is not the salary that cuts things. Okay, I'm going to go to uh, the Midwest and have a more affordable uh, lifestyle and I'll be able to impact people there and continue to be a national voice. Uh, when I told uh, Elizabeth Clinton Frazier, I said, I realized there is no rest and relaxation for me because I went into the most difficult part of my life, the darkest moment of my life there. And again, I won't get too specific today, not because I don't feel comfortable doing that, but sometimes I'll spare, spare folks graciously. Um, the worst betrayals I've had in my entire life mm-hmm. took place there in the first nine months. Damn. Folks that were mentors are not even mentors anymore Whoa. and not even speaking terms. And Dan, this is the story I don't like to say. Yeah. These are ethnic minority people of color that yes. are Christian. Yes. Yes. And, you know, if I have to be the one that um, broaches this topic, so be it. But it's tragic when you feel as though folks recognize your value and Everything that not only I have sacrificed, but my wife Karina sacrificed, my family, my extended family. Like, do you, like for folks to really understand what it takes to produce a Gabe Vias from a Mexican-American community in East L.A., like, there's been so many people that I've seen fall along the wayside. Um, it's like a miracle that I'm even here right now. Hmm. And I could point out things like... Um, you know, how dangerous my high school was and getting guns pulled on me to um, being in spiritually abusive ministries that told me I wasn't going to be living to the age of 20 because of the rapture happening and even having me (laughs) have, I mean, that next day of January 1st, year 2000 was one of the surrealist moments of my life because I said, man, it feels like my mentors that I even felt like cared about me really didn't care about me because they didn't have no problem teaching me these uh, opportunist doctrines. As one of my pastors said, when you want to do the church building fund, you preach on revelation. So I think that one of the things that you're hearing, Mm -hmm. Dan, is that um, because I did not play the game in a way that um, what allow me to be desensitized to the pain of others. Yeah. Meaning that for me to move up, I had to sign off on people getting hurt and not making any noise about it. Mm -hmm. And even myself, it's almost like a weird hazing, like, okay, once you get abused, we kind of see that you have what it takes to be an administrator. Because I, because Dan going into that, I have people saying, oh, we see you as being, um, one of the first Latino presidents of a Christian university or a seminary in the United States. Yeah. All they gave us yeah. with the Hispanic Ministries program. You, you're different. They're going to give you the opportunity. And Dan, I still published, I don't know, um, I don't know, in my first nine months there, so many articles, so many speaking engagements I did. I was extremely prolific at one of the most stressful points in my life. And to be blunt, what I would want to highlight is the only way I made it out was from spending time with you, um, 
calling up my mentors and friends that I couldn't reach in Los Angeles. So for me, um, I realized that my own journey of who I am is totally invested within community. And I'll just paint this picture for you, Dan. Mm -hmm. During probably the darkest moment of this entire journey, Hmm. um, I spent... I was on the phone on one day. It was Monday from 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. at night calling people that I'd been in a relationship 5, 10, 20 years, folks that really cared about me, Yeah, that I was calling up and saying, am I seeing this right? Because I realized the power of self-assessment and self-awareness. Yeah, If you do not see things accurately, how can your friends, your peers, your mentors, your protégés, give you an accurate assessment of what you're seeing. So again, I don't do things in a vacuum. I've said constantly, I don't trust my own self. I don't trust my own um, judgment in certain situations. I need to rely on friends that could help me see some of the blind spots that I might not be picking up on. And I can tell you this, Dan, um, my mentors, God bless them. They cared about my career. They care about my marriage. That's where a lot of their advice went. Uh, a lot of my friends, my peers, care about my money. Hey, Gabe, make sure you know uh, you, you know you're taken care of. Make sure that you you know you you stack your chips right. But my proteges, they're very different. They are centered in. You practice what you preach. You have integrity. Quite frankly, don't care about your marriage. Don't care about uh, your finances. Don't care about your career. What's God wants you to do? What's the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. And I think that too often when we're even talking about prophetic leadership or the next generation of ethnic minorities, we need to really be cognitive of of not just who are your mentors that are opening up doors for you and giving you opportunities. And again, you and I both know young folks that we're kind of like, they're getting (laughs) co-opted, they're getting compromised by some shady folks that can pay them some bills or or, or, um, seduce them with some opportunities that are really dead ends. And I would say for the the peers and the the friends of mine that I have, they're great, but the protégés are the ones that really hold feet to the fire. And I think that any young ethnic minority leader needs to be mentoring folks and being in completely transparent conversations and relationships with them. And you need to be talking about what's going on in your life in real time so that you can have the added accountability of folks that, quite frankly, Christianity was born a young movement. We have some crazy, wild folks that helped launch this thing. And the second that we detach from those young voices that are literally saying, you said this and you're doing this. These don't match. You know, Dan, I grew up in a place where we would ask lines, who's your covering? Who's your spiritual father? Yeah. That's not accountability. Yeah. It's a level of accountability, but a more complete holistic accountability includes the protégés, the protégés that will hold your feet to the fire and allow you to make it through. So for me, um, I think that I would just want to, in terms of the Ashland story, just emphasize, you know, I made it out. And um, it was a dark time, but I, a lesser person, and again, this story will come out fully eventually, a lesser person might have committed suicide, Mm. probably would have got divorced. Damn. And 
we pretty much lost their faith. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people that have experienced that at, at varying levels where, you know, you're seasoned within the movement for 20 years and you just seen too much. It's just got too much. So again, for me, I've, I, I may have lost faith in the institutions, but at the same time, I'm affirmed within the organic movement. Yeah. Because to be blunt, my church, my people is my family that I connect with all the time. And uh, when folks ask me, like, what church you go into, man, I'll put up my accountability network against anybody, <laughs> anybody um, that's attending a church on Sundays in the midweek and, and, and just say, you know, I, I have strategically built in uh, long-term relationships where folks are challenging me to ask me, am I really living it? And Dan, the heartbreaking part about this is you would hope that these institutions would embrace people with those type of characteristics, meaning, because I, I get specific in the policy. Yeah. If our policy in our recruitment, in our uh, interviews, we don't ask, who are the young leaders that are speaking into your life that you're yeah. completely transparent and accountable? Yes. Like, yes. that ain't real. Yes. So, yes. again, I, I always, even what I didn't get into in that whole discussion earlier was, um, about my life journey is that Korean and I launched Authentic LA and ran it from 2006 to 2017, which was a house church network. And through that house church network, we were completely meeting off the grid and just, um, you know, two Mexican American doctors opening up their home <laughs> and trying to invest in folks yes. and love them and yes. mentor them and just spend time with them. And so for me, what you may not have picked up on, which I'm now like, um, just, just putting out there, I roll deep with folks and, and, and roll deep in not just a, a breadth of folks from different ethnicities and backgrounds and perspectives, but deep as in, I look in years, like, like five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years that I really want to be in relationship with folks. And, 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 and through working at these um, evangelical institutions, I wish that, um, some of these characteristics that I display would be uh, more enticing to balance out the institutional nonsense that I'm calling it. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it seems like, again, they die a little death whenever one of us leaves. They die a little death yeah. whenever yeah. Um, they began to dishearten us, right? Yes. Because there was a point where I was saying, it feels as though um, being at Ashland made me lose some faith in God to trust him where I'd go next. And that's a damning statement right there. That is a truly damning statement. And when you don't even get an exit interview, hmm. when you ask them to create an ethnic minority retention strategy because nothing exists and they say yes, then you come back to them two weeks later and it doesn't come out and they say, oh, no, no, we'll do that in a couple of years. When you're the first Latino professor in 100 years of the organization, it makes you really wonder, Dan. So I guess with that, I can kind of highlight something cool that happened during my last time there, yeah. which is I was able to launch a cohort and uh, do some incredible work for them and really bond my heart to these uh, protégés, these pastors in the city that we were able to um, 
work together and encourage each other. And I would say this cohort of um, some 20 odd pastors that I ended up connecting with there did redeem a little bit of the situation that I had at Ashland. So again, I to tell the complete story, there was some highlights in the midst of this darkness, but institutionally, um, when you're burning out one of the young guns in the movement, man, that that that's not good testimony on your on your resume. Man, wow. So this is, I mean, this is deep. I mean, because you have covered quite a bit in terms of just mentorship. Uh, where the state of, I feel like, leadership is. I mean, because this brings up, this is near and dear for me, and not just because you're a close friend of mine, um, and I've known you for as, as long as I've known you, but this also brings up stuff because, you know, both of us are a part of organizations like, you know, Urban Youth Workers Institute, Christian Community Development Association, of which I feel very similar, right, mm. in terms of, like, these places where, where I felt like I carved my teeth out at, I felt like you yeah. carved your teeth out at, you know, given, given a national platform that I feel like now, and I'll speak for myself, I feel like now I'm like their bastard stepchild that, you know, I'm, I'm the prodigal son. Yeah. He just needs to come home. Yeah. I don't know how you feel, but that's, that's how I felt. And I'm not necessarily mad as much as I am sad saddened that the that the leaderships in those environments a are still contending with money white donors conservative yeah. donorship more people are 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 concerned about the money that they that they receive right from these from these from these white uh landowners yeah. um than they are about the prophetic truth and about what's the the shift that's happening right now in our society so i man you yeah, you you've you've said some things there, man. That I'm just like, man. I, I my concern is is that the leadership isn't humble enough to really sit back and be like, damn, what do we need to do? What do we need to to do to 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 to, to take this really to the next level? We go to all these conferences. They're always talking about the next level, the next generation of this and this and this and that. And as I'm looking back at it, I'm, okay, as a researcher, I'm like, but what are the metrics? Are we all just, you know, kind of doing this Christian masturbation and within conferences where we just feel good in the moment and then we come back, and, but we're still doing the same things, right? I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with that. And I think you really highlighted that, that part really well. And I'm, that's and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, because I feel like I can, we can have this conversation because we've been a part of the, all these circles um, and places like CCDA, quite honestly, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed in, and I don't mean to pull, pull them out as much as to say CCDA, UIWI, for those of you who don't know, those, those are listening. Those have been organizations that have been ethnic minority spaces, Right. Because we weren't getting them at the other conferences. We weren't getting them at youth specialties. We weren't getting them at, at you know, all the, you know, acquire the fire or whatever those, you know, other conferences were. But now to look back, man, and I'm, you know, I'm in my mid forties now. I'm like, what the hell? So I don't know. What do you, what do you think, man? And I know time is nigh. We're at an hour and all this good stuff, but I'd be curious, man, just like what your thoughts are on that. And particularly the shift in leadership and the. You know the dumpster fire that happened. You know this last, this the, the last CCDA, and whatnot. You know I won't take all the blame for that at CCDA either. By the way, those of you listening and stuff, I did my talk, but it, there was more going on there that I I did not have a part of. 
Yeah, that's that's a long one, Dan. Oh, man. I know, and we're, and we're yeah, already yeah, at time, man. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, 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 that's a long one. I guess um, just as an insider in those those uh, circles as well, um, I would say for me, I don't really have a denomination, Dan. I don't have a larger organization I'm a part of, per se. So okay. in a sense, UIWI and CCDA was in a sense... Uh, family reunion for me. Yeah. When they would convene, it was the folks that um, I connected with that I didn't really have to explain that much mm-hmm. to. Now, uh, coming from the circles that I was a part of, um, w- which was, you know, Storefront Latino Pentecostal churches and um, uh, Christian television, they didn't really have a concept of holistic ministry. Uh, more specifically, uh, tutoring programs, mentoring programs, um, engaging different aspects of the city. It was more like those were productions. And if we were going to say anything, more stuff was done at the altar, right? If you grew up in right. those type of right. contexts. Right. Maybe there was a, a men's home that was for addictions, or maybe there was some aspect of God would deliver you um, through through prayer. There was also some level of, we're going to have church so many days a week as this is the way we'll control you so it wasn't um, really built in to help address the needs of the community. So yeah. for me, I saw the purpose of UIWI and CCDA as kind of like a bridge, right? To connect other, um, uh, let's say folks that were having identity crises at going to like a place like a Biola or APU to say, hey, I this might be the first time I've ever come in contact with a Gabe Vias or a Dan Hodge or um, other folks as speakers that we know about. I remember when Soon Chan Ross spoke there one of the yeah. first times. Yeah. Andrew Marin and other folks. Yeah. In yeah. part, that was due to John Lewis, who played a, a central role at um, Urban Youth Workers at the time. Now, what I'll say is this. Um, the world's changed a lot, and I don't know if um, the where those organizations um, have kind of tried to remain in that um, that specific realm is for me. Not saying that I don't appreciate and still love people that participate in those things and teach there, but there is a level of, um, I don't know, you want to call it a cage of accountability. There is some level of, um, all right, we've been doing this stuff and playing it out for a while. And if you're not teaming up, um, some of the discussions around practical day-to-day youth ministry or urban ministry with larger societal um, injustices at a really deep level tied in with providing opportunities for younger prophetic voices that may upset donors. Yeah. We need to call something out. And what we have to call out is this. When CCDA did not allow Cornell West to speak oh, when they yeah. were in Chicago right. previously, right? because he was interviewed in Playboy, CCDA then as a community and UIWI by just association as siblings need to acknowledge we would not allow Martin Luther King Jr. to speak at our conference because he also was interviewed by Playboy. And to be blunt, when you close yourself off to folks that are trying to stretch the margin of conversations to other folks, I mean, Jesus showing up with Zacchaeus as a tax collector of whatever shady stuff he was doing, I mean... If you want to talk about what tax collectors do, um, okay, this is what you're going to pay 
or guess what? You're going to get a beat down or this is what you're going to pay. You're going to go to prison or this is what you're going to pay or something's going to go on with your daughter. Um, the level of um, that we don't operate in nuance is incredible. In fact, when they came to Chicago next and allowed an ethnic prophetic minority scholar, you, to speak, um, they have to realize y'all have to uh, get the whole package. And that's the full self. If you want to um, limit folks, you can do that, but you're only going to get a certain segment. And reality is, as long as things like that happen where you're not invited back because you upset donors or certain <laughs> folks or right. I'm not invited back, what is really happening is they're, in a sense, pushing us out and saying, y'all got to start your own thing, which essentially is what profane faith is and what some of the other things I'm cooking up yep. are. Yep. And, and so be it, right? So if y'all want to roll in those lanes, fine, still do it. I was just at UIWI hanging out with some friends on campus. So right. um, I, I still got love for folks. But at a certain level, I just know for me to fully be who I am has to acknowledge that... Um, yeah, I was a product of those things, but at the same time, um, we need to reform things. And Dan, I'll, I'll just give you a little little glimpse. Um, if you took one of my classes, uh, my last lecture is usually on the military-industrial complex. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why is that the military is like the largest youth group in the United States. <laughs> it is an interesting place, actually. It caters to a certain demographic of folks yeah yeah that um some of them actually would never even consider serving if they had college paid for like it was paid for in a previous generation okay certain folks wouldn't consider going in and risking their lives and knowing the potentials of ptsd and other things like that if they had other opportunities in their communities eisenhower himself our most decorated military general as a president former Ivy League president of Columbia. Yeah. Um, conservative, had Nixon on his uh, his ticket. All the conservative credentials warned of the military-industrial complex. And when you listen to that speech, you'll see him say lines like, you know, for the price of this aircraft carrier, you know, you could pay for this much food for, like, inner cities. Right. And for the price of this bomber plane, you could build, like, 20 or 30 inner-city schools. In the time that Brown versus the Board of Education was going down, America chose to invest in militarism when mm. the African-American communities of America should mm. have been rebuilt. And because of that, because of that, Billy Graham, who became well-known in Los Angeles, a lot of people don't know this, I care deeply about LA, I'm always studying LA history, his early sermons that he gave were tying in the anti-communism with evangelicalism. In fact, he, you know, people say, be like Billy, he just preaches the word. If you look at those sermons that he preached in my hometown, yeah, he was garnering up the Confederate roots of Los mm. Angeles there. Mm -mm -mm. In fact, Biola University is the one that put out the fundamentals, and it was funded by big oil money. 
So Billy Graham, who came to Los Angeles and was stroking the fire and the flames of uh, this type of civil religion, we need to turn back to God and not be like the godless Russians and talk about the evils of the communism in particular. During that first time he preached in L.A. is when uh, Russia dropped the atomic bomb and uh, China turned over to be communists. One-fifth of population of the world was communist. And it was in this state that William Randolph Hearst uh, ended up saying Puff Graham and Henry Luce of Time Life magazine ended up, uh, both of them together, put a press entourage around Billy just about the rest of his career because they appreciated that godless communism talk. In fact, he ended up getting connected by Sid Richardson, big oil money, to Eisenhower. And through that relationship, civil religion was really hammered out. So we had one nation under God added into the Pledge of Allegiance. It was never there before. In God We Trust was added on the money. So what I want to just juxtapose is this. When Martin Luther King spoke about his relationship with Billy Graham, there's one um, interaction that's recorded only by Graham. It states that... uh, Martin told him, hey, you keep doing your crusades and preaching the gospel and I'll handle this race stuff. It is nowhere recorded that um, Martin Luther King stated that. And there are folks that would argue that in Martin's letter to a Birmingham jail, where he stated, you know, the enemy is the silent white moderate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That he was hanging out Billy Graham to dry. And within... Uh, Martin and who he was in his historic role in the African-American church, in the mainline church, speaking at Riverside Church in New York about um, militarism and how dark that was speaking against the Vietnam War. I just want to call it out. When he got assassinated, he got assassinated by white supremacy. And unfortunately, unfortunately, some of these evangelical organizations fall more in line with Billy Graham and Eisenhower's lineage than Martin's lineage. Mm. And in fact, some of these organizations don't have the moral authority to quote Martin Luther King Jr. or to even appropriate him. It reminds me of Jesus um, speaking with the Pharisees. Yeah. The Pharisees said, uh, if we were alive in the prophets, we wouldn't have killed him. And Jesus said, huh, no, your fathers killed him. He basically was saying, keep my mentors' names out of your mouth. Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, that, that Jesus was saying, you're not aligned with them, I'm aligned with them. And in fact, when you're rejecting me, you're, you're rejecting this, this lineage. And then Jesus when he got into the temple, what was he doing? He was overthrowing things. Yeah. Money changers. And what was the direct lines he was doing? He was quoting his mentors. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. He quoted Zeal Burns. And at that point, he was essentially saying, I have the authority to quote my mentors. And the, at that point, the Pharisees said that they were going to kill him. That's when the decision went down. They were going to kill him. Then we go to Acts and you see the Pharisees now interacting with the disciples and the disciples, um, the Pharisees tell them, 
you're trying to put this man's blood on us. And the disciples like, yeah, of course, you helped play a role in killing him. And that's when they put it in their hearts to kill the disciples. Mm-hmm. So there's a reason why I keep using this language of prophetic ethnic minorities. There's a reason why I am highlighting that if you can go to some of these conferences and nobody ever stirs nothing up, is it this faith statement or is it the faith? It's, it's real calling out to real. It's the question of where are the young prophetic voices welcomed? And when they're not welcomed in these settings, then again, like I said, these settings, these organizations are beginning to die. Yeah. And I, I wish that um, when I was at Urban Youth Workers Institute, Dan, you were going to be in my first hire back in 2010. I wish that would have worked out for us. Unfortunately, it didn't. So now, now we're doing some stuff at this level. Um, but it, it is intriguing to see how things play themselves out now. Yeah. Again, if you do listen to that um, talk that I gave at Fuller, I'm going to get specific now, Dan. Okay. I'm going to get specific. All right. When I said there was people in the room that I saw that Fuller should have embraced, I was talking about Dan Hodge right there. Because <laughs> I was staring right at you. And uh, there was other folks in the room too, Dan. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. you were at the front of my mind. And uh, again, I, I just think about these um, young ministers in Los Angeles um, these these pastors, these nonprofit workers, these leaders that, um, you know, you someone that knew L.A. so much, you knew some um, uh, about Tupac and just his prophetic message to um, Los Angeles where he was at. And even then Kendra coming up after of your tie to hip hop to lose you. Man, that was one of the saddest days of my life, Dan, when you moved out. So man. I do want to call that out that um, I, I, I'm not. When when I do things like um, like that Fuller talk in public, that there's deeper things. If they give me more than twenty minutes, I could give more details. But uh, again, I, I I do I I appreciate critiques of Trump. Dan, I appreciate critiques of uh, white supremacy, but I further critique further appreciate critiques of the specifics of the genuine of the who was there when this happened and how did this specifically happen when, when folks like me and you and other folks leave los angeles it's not due to quote the the, the spirit of la or these generic things no right. it's specific provosts and presidents and deans and chairs like there it, it was specific decisions and talks that are are given to say who is the most palatable or who is the one that won't shake things up or who are the folks that will best help acculturate inoculate um our student body when in reality you know i remember at one position i applied to at fuller i mean at apu i had one of my favorite professors uh, write a letter of recommendation for me. And it wasn't until after I submitted it that I realized that the dean's probably going to look at that th the application and go, what? Now we're going to have two of them. And, and realizing, man, the lineage that I attached to, I only really bonded with like two or three professors of all my professors at APU. I didn't really bond with any professors at Fuller. I bonded yeah. with a couple at USC. Yeah. But... Dan, I have seen the um, the student, the, I've seen the participant reports, the evaluations at UIWI and saw what the students 
and, and the, the youth ministers and the leaders that attended your workshop said about you. So that's why I was so diehard on trying to get you on board as I knew truly what you had to offer. And even though it may have been uncomfortable for some folks, I realized, you no, know, this is exactly what these non-traditional students need to hear. This is uh, who they need to be exposed to in a sense. If you keep on going through the same cesspools <laughs> yeah. or, or applicant pools, you're going to keep producing the same thing. But oftentimes you need to go outside and not tokenize us and not give us authority and power, make our lives a living hell. But you need to actually empower us, support us, think about us like loving, caring mentors and think about how would I want to be treated and actually value who's in front of you. Because when I even try to envision theological education, I use language like I want to change theological education for the next 20, 40, 50 years. And I don't hear that language happening at the high levels. I hear more of what do we got to do to survive or what do we got to do status quo? And they're not, because you're not bringing in um, enough of us together to build in a critical mass or empowering us the right ways, we're just stringing along, surviving, being brought to the principal's office. Right. Then in a sense, our students pick up on that. So they know something's up in these institutions. So how can they recommend their friends? I mean, I have friends that have gone to certain schools and they transfer out of the Christian schools to go to secular schools. Could you imagine if it happened the other way around? I mean, that would that'd be radical. And the only way radical stuff like that would happen is if we actually start to change the paradigm. So for me, um, as I've looked out on the next horizon of my life, that's really what I'm trying to like dream about now is what could we do built for us, by us, people of color, to help make a dent into uh, what seems like these institutions not really giving a damn about us. Wow. Woo! Dr. Gabe Diaz, man, um, you have laid it on us today. This is amazing. This is a great conversation. Um, man, where can folks find you, man? Where, where, uh, where would they want to bring you out and, and hire you and you know, put you on the, put you, make you tenured and, and, and the whole nine, man? Where, 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 where can we get at you, man? Well, if you Google me, you'll, you'll see all kinds of stuff. Uh, it, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And by the way, don't sleep on LinkedIn now. Don't sleep on yeah, LinkedIn. You do have a LinkedIn uh, game going, I, my, man. My link, the, the LinkedIn game is strong with this one. That's right. Um, also, keep posted to oneprotege.com. Uh, you'll su- see uh, me releasing a podcast myself where I'll be interviewing my mentors, my peers, and my protégés, and I'll be uh, pulling the curtain back to talk a lot more about my own life, and you'll be have a chance to learn about those that I've been on this journey on. Uh, I ended up preaching my one of my uh, protege's funerals out in Las Vegas uh, last year. And within that sermon, I said, um, when you hear me speak, if you listen closely, you'll hear a collective, an eclectic collective of protege's who I've not only shaped, but have shaped me. So um, I'm all about platforming the next generation. I want to hear what they got to say. I'm, I want to be inspired by them. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why I resonate with you, Dan. So if, yeah, feel free to reach out to me in any of those ways. I would love to connect with you. And uh, one other thing I will drop is this. 
this fall, I will be launching my own school. All right, come on. The Los Angeles School of Mentorship. Yes. Home of the beloved Chihuahuas. <laughs> Viva la Revolution. Come on. So uh, I've, I've dreamt about this for years, and finally I'm taking that step out of faith out there and uh, everything from the funding to the location to the planning is definitely going to be based in Southern California, and we will be doing some stuff in the fall. So if you keep... Um, tabs on me on social media you'll be able to learn more about that and again my heart is really to help shape folks to be in healthy mentoring relationships uh that's what i eat breathe sleep in fact my wife dr karina vias also research mentoring and we uh co-publish a lot of articles together so uh feel free to reach out to me and uh i would love to get to know um how this uh podcast uh, conversations impacted you and would love to hear more about your journey and what you're up to, wherever context you're at. Wow. Well, that's what's up. Well, I will put all these in the show notes for those of you listening, whitehodgepodcast.com. Check it out. Uh, if you're on iTunes, uh, you can just go to the Profane Faith uh, you know, site and on, on iTunes and just click on the webpage. It'll take you right there and you can look at some of these links and whatnot. I want to make sure folks are seeing, you know, getting getting these, uh, this, accessing this information and whatnot. But brother... Thank you so much for uh, coming out today and speaking. I know you got something here at McCormick, at least on the day we're recording this, Back to the Future, understanding how your mentoring lineage affects you today. You're doing that with your wife, the other Dr. V is in the room, yeah. I might say. All right, brother. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yes, sir.